Good morning, uh, everyone. Can I ask those in the room to, to, to take your seats and settle down? Well, welcome, everyone. Could I uh, kindly ask everyone to settle down and, and get your seats? Uh, let me extend a warm welcome to uh, everyone who's joining us from around the world. Um, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, as we, as we say these days on, on our big virtual events. Uh, and good morning to those of you in the room who've joined us from, uh, from the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, my name is Purnima Menon. I'm Senior Director for Food and Nutrition Policy at uh, IFPRI. Um, and today I'm really pleased to be able to moderate and, and uh, create the con help to co-create the conversations that we want to have today to share the findings of the work that we've been doing with support from the Rockefeller Foundation on analyzing global commitments uh, to SDG2. Uh, we stand at a really uh, important moment in the context of the goals that the world agreed upon in 2015. We're about halfway through a set of really ambitious goals uh, to address a wide range of development issues for everyone on this planet and for the planet itself. Um, and this year, uh, last year was the, the midpoint of the review of the SDGs. And, and this is really a moment in time when we have to take a hard look at what lies ahead, um, what our ambitions must be as we look forward, um, and what those ambitions mean in the context of the changes and the crises that we see around us. Um, so in the, in the context of today's conversations, we'll focus on SDG 2, but right in kicking this off, you know, I, I want to uh, put out there that I think the kind of effort that we've undertaken to understand where we are, where we are going, um, and what the commitments that the world continues to make year on year um, at global event after global event, what they mean for SDG 2 and the analysis that we've done of that, that the IFPRI team has done, um, I, I think there are uh, potentially important implications for looking across SDGs as we look forward. Um, let me first uh, kick off our, our event today by requesting IFPRI's Director General, Johan Swinnen, to offer a few words of uh, welcome to all of us. Uh, Yo, may I invite you, please? Thanks very much, uh, Purnima, and uh, welcome all, and a special welcome to our colleagues from the Rockefeller Foundation for the collaboration of this work, and um, it's been a great achievement, I think, and from uh, all the team members, they have very much appreciated um, the collaboration in terms of the real collaboration, not just one on paper, but at the engagement, and also the fact that you have taken uh, the initiative on this thing, which I think is a really important uh, issue, actually, and sometimes things we talk a lot about, but we don't do a lot of analysis on, on what is going on. Um, we all know that uh, <clears throat> we are at that very, uh, very special time in, in history, really, because over the past uh, 25 years, roughly from... Uh, 1990 till 2015, we've seen an amazing progress in reduction in poverty, in reduction in malnutrition, in an improvement of food security in the world. And then things have changed. So we've seen first a flattening out of the indicators, and then over the past seven, eight years, we've seen really a worsening of all these indicators. And so while before we almost were in the middle of a, a miracle, if you want, in terms of an unprecedented part in history where um, uh, all these indicators improved, where hunger improved, we are now 
in at the moment where things have changed very dramatically okay and so we are not only not on, on track actually we're going in the wrong direction particularly over the the years between 2015 and, and 2022 um, there's a number of factors behind it I'm not gonna steal the thunder here from uh, I think Rob Voss will talk about these evolutions so the the report is really and the presentation today has two parts one is about an analysis of where we are, uh, where we have come from, and where we are likely going and, and not going, okay, what we will uh, not achieve. And the second part of the analysis and the presentation is really about what governments have done. And so what we'll hear about is that governments have said a lot, okay, but have not always implemented what they are uh, said that they would do. And so I think, um, and this relates to a, a number of factors. So this is something, if you want, what the economists call revealed preference, okay? Don't listen to what people say what they do, but look at what they're actually doing. And so the analysis has focused on a number of things. One, they look at what's called means of implementation in terms of investments, in terms of trade restrictions, distortions in markets, um, measures to um, ensure the proper functioning of food commodity markets. And then when they, uh, the, uh, the researchers have analyzed the statements of governments and the follow-up, if you want, there, and also the accountability of what they promised, they have looked at, at seven different indicators, okay? And I think that's really quite impressive. In fact, in uh, almost um, more than a decade ago, I myself led a study on the implications of the 2007-2008 price spike and how that triggered government reactions and then also led to actions in terms of funding, etc. And so this is a much more careful analysis because they look at these different components of, of government statements and their actions. And so they have uh, good news and, and bad news in a way. So the good news is there's a lot more attention to food issues, I think, in the global forum. And I'm sure they will document this in, in detail. At the same time, when you go to the issue of capacity building, of governance, of finance, okay, what's the dollars which are uh, behind that, and of accountability, you will see that, I mean, the, the story is much less positive, okay, and there's things that need to be done. I think the study has lots of implications, and particularly, I think, also something which is closest to the work at IFBRI does in terms of measurement, okay? Measurement is really important in terms of for an accountability issue, and, um, and also the establishment of institutions, okay? Institutions are important, I think, for implementations, for accountability, for enforcement of a lot of these things, and I think we should think both about uh, local institutions, national institutions, and also global institutions, particularly on the accountability and the enforcement. So uh, with that, I'm not going to take up much more time. I'm going to leave it to the researchers themselves who did the analysis to provide uh, more details on all this. So thanks very much for, for the team to make this work. Again, um, to the Rockefeller Foundation, particularly Katrine, uh, being here with us uh, today. And I really hope this is just the start of our, I mean, we've worked in the past together, okay, but we will continue to work together in the future. Uh, I think I'm handing over the floor to you now or to Purnima. So thank you very much. <coughs> Thank, thank you, Yo, for those uh, opening remarks. And you didn't quite steal the thunder, but it was a, a great opening for, for what's to come. Uh, let me welcome, um, it isn't every day at IFPRI that we get to host uh, World Food Prize laureates. I'm really so pleased to have Catherine Bertini with us uh, today. So I, she needs no introduction, but let me do it anyway. She was the uh, executive director of the UN World Food Program for 10 years. And in 2003, she was named the World Food Prize uh, laureate. Uh, currently, she is managing director around a wide 
addressing a wide range of global food issues, food security issues uh, at the Rockefeller Foundation. Her work there has primarily focused on addressing issues related to the global food crisis. Um, and you know, when Catherine calls, you don't say no. And so it was a real pleasure for us to be asked to engage with the Rockefeller Foundation to support this work. And you've been a true partner in, in this, Catherine, in nudging us, uh, shaping the work. And you know, it, it's been such a great pleasure to work with you. Let me uh, invite you to say a few words, and then we'll get on with the research. Thank you very much to, uh, to the Director General uh, for putting this uh, all together, and, f and I mean IFPRI and its work, and to Purnima and your team, who have been masterful in, in putting the project together. We, we are most appreciative. And this is a very high-quality product, but that's what IFPRI does. And that's why when Rockefeller Foundation was thinking about this work, the first and really only place we went to to ask if they would work with us was IFPRI. From the beginning of, of my time at WFP, uh, and in fact before that at USDA, I knew the importance of the work of IFPRI. And at WFP, as some of you know, in fact there's some former WFP colleagues who are here, uh, we went to um, IFPRI uh, reports and data and analysis that helped us when we were trying to decide uh, what's our mission. And if our mission is to end hunger, we have to get the food that we deliver all around the world to the people most uh, committed to ending hunger in each household, and those were the women. And of course, we found so much amazing data and research at IFPRI that went to help us prove our point and really change the whole programming of the organization. So uh, with that in mind, from, from an early time, we knew that IFPRI's quality work continued and that from Rockefeller's perspective, they would be a prime organization to focus. When we started our, our small global um, nutrition team, it was after the invasion of Ukraine and the, uh, and the issue raised by Raj Shah, the president, and Roy Steiner, the senior VP, was, um, okay, uh, what do we need to think about about food security globally and about the fact that the numbers of of hungry poor have increased even before this happened even before COVID and um, what what kind of things should we think about for that so there's a variety of things we've been we've been thinking about one was just in general how does the system use the resources that it has and how and since most of the resources are humanitarian is there a way that we could help to encourage that they're used that they are used in a more sustainable way. This is an old story, right, if you've been around a long time, but we're trying to look at it with a different focus. And then um, this issue is really, okay, well, governments have made a lot of commitments. What's the status of those commitments? What's the status of the problem? And where are we with implementing these things? And is they're even, are they even still relevant? And that's what we asked uh, IFPRI to look into. I mean, why? talk about a lot of other new things before we deal with uh, already what exists. So these, these kind of two reports today, as um, uh, Yo described, are really going to, we hope, help make a difference. And we hope everyone here online and here in the room uh, will help think about ways to get this data, these data out and to help making the point to donors uh, and to all governments, really, that there's a lot more to do just to keep up with the commitments already made and just to try to bring us back toward a positive movement toward the uh, SGG2 goals. So that's where we're coming from. And by the way, we, meaning Rockefeller, also want to think about the machinery that we have 
not part of this report, but the machinery that we have to work with global food security, if in fact the numbers have been going down since 2015, do we even have the right uh, measures in place to, to try to fix them? So that will be a future uh, discussion later. So that's where we come from uh, and at the foundation. Uh, the foundation, and now that these reports are either launched as it, this today or, or coming on at later in the future, foundation will return to a lot of its basic operational work. But we, we really wanted to get into the discussion to, to help push the discussion into uh, these important matters and have, trying to get more governments and uh, more actors in the global food security community understanding where the gaps are and committed to really taking action to take change. So we salute Pranima and her team. Um, we salute the Director General and the broader IFPRI team and the broader CG system uh, because they're one of the group of organizations who really can make a difference. Um, I want to thank also um, Emily Fredenberg who at the Rockefeller Foundation did an amazing job keeping in touch on a daily basis with, um, with IFPRI issues and Amy Augustin who's helped um, pull all of this together for us. Thank you all and uh, we look forward to a really fascinating morning. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Those were in incredibly uh, kind words to, to kick us off. Um, um, let me just say a little bit about what the agenda itself will look like this morning. Um, this work needed, you know, just by definition, a very interdisciplinary team and a fairly large team to work on it. And so we have a few members of the team who will participate in presenting the findings. So I'll, I'll just introduce them briefly so that we can make the presentation itself be as seamless as possible. Uh, we have Rob Voss, who's the director of markets, uh, the Markets, Trade, and Institutions Unit at IFPRI, and he'll present the, the work on the global scenarios for food security and what they mean. Um, we have Christina Zorbas, who's uh, w one of our uh, partners on the research and has really uh, anchored a, um, the analysis of the, the outcome statements and the commitments uh, of, the meet, uh, of the various meetings. Um, we have Shobha Suri, who was, uh, who's with the Observer uh, Research Foundation in India and was very um, in integral to what happened around uh, G20 discourse uh, in India. So she's been part of the research team as well. We have Elise Iruhirie from um, uh, IFPRI, who's also been involved in analyzing some of the more nutrition-linked uh, uh, commitment efforts. And then we'll wrap up from the research team. Um, and then I'm also really privileged to, you know, to be able to welcome uh, Asma Latif and a, um, a really wonderful set of um, advocacy-focused partners, people who are really thinking about how to bring people together around big issues who will join us in the panel discussion. Uh, we have uh, Mwandwe Chileshe, who's with, the Glo with Global Citizen, Oliver Camp, who's with the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, Alex Pressure, who's with the Scaling Up Nutrition Movement, and Pedro Vormitag, who's with um, uh, the Brazilian Center for International Relations. Uh, again, Brazil takes over the G20, so some interesting uh, transitions there. Um, and Asma will say a little bit more about the, the panelists, but I really want to thank everyone because what we have in the room is both the, the researchers and what we hope are the, the evidence users. All right, so with a, without further ado, I'm going to kick us off on the research presentation, and then one by one the, uh, the presenters will either come online or uh, speak through the, uh, their work in person here. 
All right, so uh, I've already gone over that. Let's not bother there. Um, I also want to acknowledge, you know, again, just the whole team um, at IFPRI. This was really, um, and, and our partners, so it, it's a collaboration between IFPRI, the Deakin University team in Australia, a group that does a lot of work on studying um, uh, policy transformations in, in health in particular, and then uh, the Observer Research Foundation in India, a very multidisciplinary team. Uh, and, and like Catherine, I actually want to call out uh, Eleanor Jones, raise your hand, Eleanor, um, who really helped us hold this multidisciplinary group uh, and a very dynamic project moving forward. So thank you, everybody. Um, and unfortunately, some of the other colleagues can't be here, but um, they will be available later as needed. All right, so as, as Catherine mentioned, the, the overarching question we were really trying to answer was looking at not just what, not so much what individual countries are doing, but really about what's happening in the global space when countries come together to commit to solving big, big problems. And so the, the primary question that we've asked in this research effort is, is really to try to understand what's going on in the commitments that are made in global forums, and how can those commitments best help to tackle food, food security and dietary challenges as we look to the future. Um, there is a proliferation, as you will see, and as we see all around us, of global leaders coming together from around the world to discuss what problems they're going to focus on, um, how they plan to attack those, and what commitments they're willing to make, both as a collective and then eventually acting on the commitments they've made as a collective in their own settings and through their own means. And so our focus is really on the commitments made as collectives. This isn't so much about individual commitments made by individual governments, because we really see that there's power in the, in the coming together of the collective to shape the, the, the choice of problems we work on, to shape the discourses, to, you know, to decide what kinds of actions to commit, commit to. And so you know, I really want us to keep that in mind as we, as we think about the research. This is really about um, the commitments of the collective. Um, the, the primary driver uh, for this work and, and the reason for our focus on SDG2 has been um, explained by, by Catherine. Um, and you know, Rob will say a little bit more about uh, some of the work that we've done on the projections. But I really want us to reflect on the fact here that something, um, hunger, food insecurity, poor diets, and malnutrition, and these are fundamental human needs and human challenges that affect people's lives today, that affect their futures, that affect the future of humanity. These are problems for which we have solutions in hand. Uh, they ha these are problems that have been solved in many settings over many years, and yet we live in a world where you know, over 600 million people are projected to, be, to face hunger by 2030. Um, there are estimates that one in three people face moderate to severe food insecurity. And you know, with a nutrition lens, as we've started to look at, you know, a beyond food security agenda, uh, there is, of course, the evidence that three billion people cannot afford a healthy diet. And so we're really putting, you know, human progress in peril by not paying full attention to what's going on here with food security and nutrition. The SDG uh, 2 cluster has two indicators in it. The, second indi the first indicator is the three elements that I mentioned that focus primarily on food security and diets. The second cluster is a set of indicators that acknowledges the importance of the malnutrition of vulnerable um, uh, human populations, such as mothers and children, in the context of shaping, shaping the future of our world. And, and on that as well, 
you know, what we see is that, of course, malnutrition has improved, but very much persists worldwide and is changing in its shape and form as we look forward. So we still have the challenges of undernutrition uh, as seen in children. We still have anemia challenges. And, and there is a, a movement um, in, in terms of an evolution of the challenges. But what we do know is that poor diets are central to all forms of malnutrition. And so it behooves us to really think hard about the progress we're making um, on shaping what human beings are able to eat on a day-to-day -day basis, okay? Um, I'm gonna uh, call Rob over now, and then Rob will talk about the projections, and then we'll carry on. You will need to use this to turn the slides. <coughs> Thank you, uh, Pranima. Um, I was asked to talk about uh, global scenarios, so before getting into that, it's important to realize that what's different in this SDG agenda, or the, agenda, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, is that it's a global agenda, um, a difference from its predecessor, the Millennium, Millennium Development Goals. They're often perceived as an agenda for development, and particularly development in poor countries or rich countries, just support that process, uh, but not to do a lot of action themselves. So this is a global agenda about sustainable development, uh, so global objective has to be achieved. Um, second uh, important thing to realize about this agenda is that even though there's um, 17 goals and 169 targets, uh, very little has been said, and deliberately so, how those goals and targets should be achieved. But there are a few, um, so this is moving by itself. Uh, but there are a few means of implementation that have been um, defined um, as part of this agenda and under SDG2, there are three of them. Um, the, the first is to increase investment in rural infrastructure, agricultural research and extension services, prevent trade restrictions, and adopt measures to limit food price volatility. Now, this is um, far from a complete set of instruments to induce sustainable food system transformation, uh, but progress on all of these fronts will be essential to facilitate the achievement of SDG2. So let me say a few things about global scenarios uh, uh, on the, at the hands of these three um, uh, uh, means of implementation. So first, on uh, increasing investment in real infrastructure, culture R&D, and extension services. On R&D, the good news uh, there is that, uh, in absolute terms, investment in R&D has increased, particularly uh, from growth coming from developing countries, uh, Brazil, China, and India. But if you look at the more aggregate picture and relative to uh, what would be needed uh, given the size of the agricultural sector, something called the agriculture research in intensity, uh, then what we see is that uh, on average for the world, and particularly for low-income countries, uh, the, the investments in R&D are far from uh, sufficient. Um, what is more, the Commission on Sustainable Agriculture Intensification estimated a few years ago that uh, the required investment in R&D for sustainable intensification of agricultural systems in developing countries uh, was $15 billion per year uh, over the coming decades. Means of implementation to A, a um, uh, not only um, uh, ask for more investment in R&D, but also for enhanced international cooperation and more investments in rural infrastructure. The good news here is that um, 
government's already spent a lot of mine and a lot of money and increasingly so on supporting agriculture uh, development and farm systems uh, at uh, um, an amount of 800 billion dollars per year uh, at the moment the, uh, the bad news there is that uh, all of that or most of that is for market distorting support and uh, for fermenting unsustainable uh, practices also very little of that support is for uh, R&D. Um, <clears throat> in our modeling scenario analysis, uh, what we find, and that's been part of increasing discussions at International Forum, the G20, COP28, uh, all have been calling for uh, what we call reorientation of these, uh, this large amount of government support uh, for more R&D, for sustainable uh, transformation to help food systems contribute to the threat of climate change and address food security issues. So what we find if we run a couple of scenarios with our uh, global model that there can be a strong triple win-win uh, situations uh, for people, planet, and improved uh, livelihoods if we reorient it for sustainable intensification, more R&D, uh, infrastructure, and in particular incentives for food system actors to adopt um, these um, uh, the improved uh, technologies uh, and practices. Uh, and that may also help improve diets uh, through um, uh, uh, reducing the cost of uh, more nutritious uh, foods. However, in practice, and there's been a lot of uh, um, resistance also from farmers uh, around the world, particularly in Europe, against any thought of re repurposing, um, but very little has happened so, so far. And also, given the uneven distribution of the support that's providing at the moment, a lot of international cooperation will be needed for, for this repurposing uh, agenda. And as I uh, already mentioned, uh, this cooperation and uh, this repurposing is yet to happen. <coughs> also, at odds with uh, the promise of means implementation to be avoiding trade restrictions. Uh, many countries have responded to the recent shocks to world food markets by imposing restrictions on food exports. Here we see the dramatic increase in response to both the COVID um, pandemic uh, in the first months of that, uh, as well as uh, in uh, response to the um, shocks to world markets uh, caused by the Ukraine uh, crisis. Um, what we find uh, in our um, uh, research, so while this may seem logical for governments to try and protect their consumers uh, from uh, food shortages, um, it, uh, our research shows that these export restrictions are counterproductive. They tend to double, in the end, the price on world markets because what maybe you think is good for your population, you drive other parts of the world population. And um, uh, secondly, um, what we find is that so it doubles on average the price of the food, the initial food price shock, and it quadruples the impact on food price volatility. So, in short, there's been little progress on this. Um, uh, the dollar round for uh, multilateral trade negotiations has failed, uh, and the only good news here is that, on uh, with the um, idea in mind of what the commitments made here is that uh, 
the G20, WTO, and other fora have called for limiting these restrictions, and also, more specifically, they've been limiting uh, restrictions on uh, export uh, bans uh, related to um, uh, the, um, uh, the um, food purchases by the World Food Programme and other organizations for food assistance. But otherwise, we've seen very limited progress on that front. Uh, lastly, on the, uh, the means of implementation C, food price volatility. In fact, we've seen an increase in uh, volatility in food prices over the past years since the uh, SAG agenda uh, was adopted. Um, uh, and instead of better managing food stocks and reserves, uh, food markets have been remaining tight and with any uh, news of um, uh, um, lost harvests or supply shocks, uh, we've seen increases in food price uh, volatility in global markets. And also the WTO has made little progress on uh, regulating better public stockholding uh, as better management of uh, food uh, reserves. Uh, and this is uh, a bit odd since it is permitted within the rules of the game of WTO to implement these. So in summary, We've seen little progress in uh, leveraging um, uh, these three means of implementation um, and too little concerted effort has been made either on the more investment on R&D for sustainable technologies and incentives for their adoption to facilitate food trade rather than hampering it and to reduce food market price uh, volatility and food market volatility more uh, in general. So the world's can, but particularly should do better. Thank you. Christina Zorbas, please. Thanks, Pranima. Um, can I just get a thumbs up if you can hear me? Or yes, I'm just going to go on and assume you can. Awesome. Um, hello, everyone. It's a real pleasure to present on the findings of the work now in the next section, which looked at um, the analysing the commitment statements that have come out of all these different events that you've already heard mentioned a few times. Um, obviously, the analysis is quite extensive, so this is really a high level overview that um, hopefully um, is more food for thought than anything and prompts a lot of discussion later on. So what you can firstly see on this slide is the different types of events that we mapped out originally um, and then pulled the commitment statements from since 2015. And what you can see is nine global events, um, including the UN general events. These are often the biggest ones. Um, as was mentioned, you've got the COP now gaining momentum more and more each year. You've got trade events like the World Trade Organization meetings, um, agricultural events where agriculture ministers meet every year to make commitment, commitments, and then smaller events like the G20 and G7, which we'll dive into. Um, so all up, we had over 100 um, documents that we analysed in this analysis. Um, and there's, there are other nutrition-related events that we'll come back to um, when Elise presents the findings. Um, but just wanted to reiterate that we just focused on meetings where they produced commitment statements that are negotiated between governments. So that was a really important defining clear criteria for the study. Um, so next slide, please. And um, this is, again, just a high level overview of the analysis framework that we ran each document um, through and looked at the different ways that documents aligned with the seven framework elements um, on the slide. So in terms of vision and goals, 
the actions being scaled or the means of implementation, the scale-up strategy, capacity to scale up, governance mechanisms, financing and monitoring accountability. So probably no surprises there for everyone. Um, and we also added some sub indicators to help us sort of extract the data and measure some of these in a bit more detail. Um, next slide, please. And so this slide now just gives you um, the first finding from the results, which was all around um, looking at the visions and the way that different global meetings frame um, frame their priorities towards addressing SDG2. And so what you can see on the left-hand side is that you get some real dominant frames around, you know, agricultural issues really being the root cause of food insecurity, um, inequities whereby different population groups like women, young people, low and middle income countries are most affected. Um, increasingly, you see conflict being a key driver of these issues. Um, but to a lesser extent, you see um, these documents really committing to addressing root drivers like poverty or acknowledging food as a right um, and committing to supporting broader development in priority areas like rural areas and low and middle income countries. Um, next slide, please. And so this table is definitely you know, a lot for the eyes. Um, so I'll take you through it step by step. Um, it is a summary of essentially each of the meetings on the left-hand side, they're all listed there, um, and how they performed against the different framework elements. Um, and so really um, the darker shading suggests that more indicators were met within each of the framework elements, um, and the lighter shading suggests that there are more gaps in the indicators um, that aren't being met. Um, and so what you can see is in vision and goals, um, you know, we're getting some good alignment with the SDG goals across all the different meetings. Um, but then when it comes to scale up strategies, you're only getting about two, thir two thirds of um, the commitments being made that really address a specific means of implementation and two thirds that address other types of means of implementations that um, weren't presented earlier by Rob. And so then you've got um, scale up strategies, which is really a lot of gaps in how we sort of um, get to the expansion of these actions and reach more people. And so this is often spoken of through, you know, we're going to get a committee together and that's going to be the platform that we're then going to use to reach different people. Um, and so then you've got capacity with less than half of the commitment statements identifying a need to enhance capacity on the ground um, and across all different levels, organisational, systemic, structural capacity, um, with yeah, really a few gaps in how that capacity building is actually going to occur. And so then we go to governance, um, which is you know all around how the processes, the institutions, the way we coordinate actions across sectors and across levels. Um, and whilst there's an increasing recognition of the need, of the need for horizontal coherence across sectors, um, there are more gaps when it comes to vertical coherence. So how we go from the global to the local um, or even global to the national levels. Um, and so then financing, there's a lot of talk around um, commitments, um, needing to draw upon resources from multilateral banks, um, public and private sources, foreign assistance, um, but really there's a lot of gaps in terms of what those costing targets are and the specific details. Um, and um, lastly, thinking about accountability, which Elise will come back to as well. 
um, there is a major focus on self-regulation. -regu so that's sort of self-tracking of progress um, at, at the meetings, reporting annual annual reporting changes in annual reports, um, and really a lack of um, evidence of any sort of consequences for inaction on any of the commitments being made. So a pretty huge gap. Um, and so just lastly, on my next slide, please. Um, this just gives you, you know, a deep dive into COP, as it's been mentioned a few times, um, the COP's becoming a really dominant platform for people to get together, all sorts of actors, um, to make commitments towards um, addressing SDG2. And so what we see now in COP is that food security is increasing, increasingly on the agenda. It was not always the case. I'm sure many people in the room know that. Um, and you know, there's there's just a more comprehensive recognition of the problem um, at the at the most recent COP meetings. Um, but still, um, whilst there's there are there's a focus on better um, strategy, better strategies, developing better platforms to scale up actions, um, including more um, committees that are focused on the specific issue, um, and including. Um, uh, the recent launch of the FAO roadmap alongside the UAE Declaration on Sustainable Agriculture and Resilient Food Systems, um, there are still issues in terms of governance. So um, sectors still aren't talking together as effectively as they could be. Um, there's still big questions how we really genuinely include civil society in decision making, how we go from global to local and how we address conflicts of interest in decision making. So I'll leave that there and hand over to Shoba now, who will give you a case study of what this sort of looks like in terms of the G20. Thank you, Christina. Can I have the next slide, please? Yeah. Uh, talking of G20, uh, since the 2015, there have been uh, nine uh, G20 meetings that have been convened and about uh, 10 commitments and communiques have been endorsed. Uh, as you can see on the slide on the top, the table is the average uh, of the G20 summits uh, since the 2015. It averages at 14 with elements of uh, vision and goal and also scale up action, which are most commonly met, as also mentioned by Christina in her earlier presentation. And uh, India's G20 specifically came at a very crucial time, which was post-pandemic and at the time of crisis, and was adopted by a 100% consensus, which not only reflects the common understanding of the members, but also the voice of the Global South. And uh, with four back-to-back -back Global South nations now hosting the G20, the voice only gets better, and uh, with the addition of the AU, it fully empowers the discussion on food security and other global issues. Uh, on the slide, you see uh, some of the three key indicators uh, from the framework that is on governance, financing, and monitoring and accountability. Uh, looking at the governance, uh, there have been some uh, trade commitments uh, in the uh, in the communique of the G20 India, the Delhi Declaration, which relates to fair and transparent uh, food, agricultural and fertilizer trade, uh, and also fiscal measures to support people experiencing poverty and financial stress uh, during the cost of living crisis. Also, on the other means of implementation in the commitment statement, it relates to addressing the social and the economic inequalities uh, underpinning hunger and food insecurity. 
the Delhi Declaration particularly recognizes the overarching uh, importance of support for gender equity as a step towards achieving the SDG2 goal, uh, wherein it clearly commits to women's food security and nutrition as a cornerstone uh, for both individual as well as community development. Uh, moving on to financing, it calls for scaling up financing and mobilization of uh, both affordable as well as adequate and accessible financing from all sources uh, uh, to support the developing countries uh, for accelerating the progress on the SDGs and especially the SDGs. Um, uh, the commitment uh, further uses a monitoring framework uh, or an information system to guide their uh, monitoring and evaluation. At the 2023 G20, a commitment was made to strengthen the agricultural market information system, AMIS as we call it, and the group on the Earth Observations Global Agricultural Monitoring, the GeoGlam. Both AMIS and GeoGlam are basically mechanisms that, are, that have been established and they also report to the G20. Overall, uh, there is a need for strengthening uh, the governance, the financing, and the accountability mechanism, as we can see from some of the commitments that have come out of the G20 uh, Delhi Declaration. Can I have the next slide, please? Uh, on, on some of the implementation and the scale-up action, uh, the commitment does commit to enhancing uh, global food security and nutrition uh, with major focus on uh, strengthening not only the technological advancements, but also public-private partnerships. Uh, there is very clear focus on uh, supporting small-scale farmers, rural women and youth, and also uh, how to bring about the need for, identifies the need for, you know, increasing investments, coordination, and research and development. Uh, there have been specific uh, research commitments and innovations talked about in terms of climate resilient grains. There have been a lot of examples of millets and also water management and also to an extent of how equitably they would be improving the access to the digital data and the knowledge of sustainable solutions. Uh, the G20 Delhi Declaration also shows a bit of the horizontal coherence when we say that it addresses the hunger, food security, and the diet quality challenges through actions on the ecosystem, environmental health, and biodiversity. Uh, it also commits to addressing some multiple social and health determinants wherein it talks about nutrition, the wash issues, the water sanitation, and also to an extent on the non-communicable diseases uh, and the social protection. And uh, somewhere it also talks about aligning uh, food security goals uh, with the human rights and the right to uh, Overall, uh, uh, I would like to end saying that, you know, the G20 now in 2024 is moving on to Brazil, and uh, they have already declared a three-point agenda, which is, talks about combating hunger, poverty, and inequality, and focusing on these dimensions. I'm sure they need to uh, further push the agenda on food security with more specific outcomes, which will definitely depend on their uh, framing and deliberations. I will stop here, and I will hand it over to Elisa. Good morning. Um, so 
So as mentioned, uh, this research mainly focused on multilateral global forum meetings uh, where member states are negotiating and coming up with resolutions, declaration, and statements that they collectively um, will work on. But in our work, it was also important to highlight the growing use of multi-actor approaches um, where they're not focusing only on negotiated agreements, but bringing in different stakeholders um, to make and, and, and decide how to address global goals, including SDG2. Um, these meetings have become more inclusive, consisting of civil society groups, indigenous populations, farmers, and women's groups in finding solutions to problems and um, incorporating them in the commitments made. Um, these approaches also promote nationally specified pathways. Um, as we've mentioned, a lot of the global decisions are very global, um, but there are examples of such as COP, um, the UN Food System Summit, where countries are specifically identifying the actions that they will take to address um, challenges um, within their countries, to address the globally agreed goals in their um, specific countries. So for example, for COP, we have the, the NDCs, the Nationally Determined Contributions, um, pledges made by countries on their actions to target addressing climate change. Um, the UNFSS has led to national pathways to sustainable food systems, um, uh, where countries are identifying how to address all the 17 SDGs, but focusing on the framing of food systems. Um, there's also the Nutrition for Growth Summit, um, where countries, along with um, donors, uh, uh, businesses, civil society, are also coming to make pledges, um, especially financial pledges, to invest in efforts to address all forms of malnutrition. Um, and these nationally specified pathways and actions, there has been a focus on these to, to really identify what can countries do or what will they do to address some of these global challenges, and it may help to increase accountability um, and monitoring um, by assessing the progress on the actions these countries have specified for themselves. Um, there are global stock takes organized um, for UNFSS every two years until 2030, um, every five years for the NDCs to uh, assess how progress is going. Um, for N4G, there's also the Global Nutrition Report that came out of that as a form of tracking progress in nutrition. Um, there's also the Nutrition Accountability Framework, uh, a platform that collects all the commitments made by countries, by civil society, academia, um, and registers those and tracks those. At the same time, um, having these unique national pathways also raises demands for financing. Um, which we have seen as a challenge from the, re from the analysis presented today, and also capacity. Um, it requires diverse modalities to provide effective support, especially to low- and middle-income countries. Um, and so that's also a point to, to really think about for implications for the future. And lastly, uh, we wanted to know that there's much that remains to be learned on the relationship between the nature of forum governance um, and the effectiveness and the uptake of the commitments made at, at these such forums. Um, and so I'll hand over to Pranima now, who will um, talk about the conclusions of this work. Can we get the last, probably the last slide, Michael? Um, uh, while we're waiting, uh, thank you so much to, to all the presenters. You know, I, I hope uh, what we've done is leave you with a sense of the 
the extent and the nature of the challenge that lies ahead of us on SDG 2, the complexity and diversity of the, the global spaces where leaders are convening uh, to make decisions, to commit to actions, to recognize problems for what they are, um, and then take things forward. Um, it's been you know, a, a bit of a process of discovery for us as, as well. I don't think we've really quite stopped to take stock of often these meetings that even we, we participate in. Um, but it's made us really think about, you know, how do we view these findings and how do we think about how, you know, what they mean for us? So this is just, you know, our sort of uh, where we are sitting on this. And I'm really looking forward to hearing from, you know, our global advocacy partners in just a moment. Um, so I think, you know, for us, what's really clear, and, and this is the good news, is, you know, there is a real sense that the problem is well recognized and there's a strong vision and an intent to act across a real diversity of global fora. I mean, they, they run the gamut from economic events to, you know, large um, all-country events such as the UNGA. Um, but this hasn't necessarily led to commitments on all the other things that need to be in place, right? So that's important for us to think about in, in terms of what some asks are looking forward. The other thing that emerged from the analysis, as Elise just wrapped up around, is just the, the new approaches to multilateralism offer both challenges and opportunities to think about how we move on the pathway from making a commitment to actually help solve the challenge, you know, the role of these nationally specified transformation pathways around globally agreed upon goals, you know, how does this all come together, I think is, is really key. Um, there is uh, clearly a, a couple of, um, you know, data accountability and, and research questions that of course came up to us. We are a bunch of researchers at the end of the day. Um, and we realized that, you know, there, there is a real need for investments around efforts to monitor the, the wide range of commitments that are being made uh, to SDG2 um, across these different fora so that one can really help to bring things together. Um, and then the other thing that's very clear is, you know, we've discussed a lot about issues of um, political economy and institutional analyses in how food systems work uh, and how, you know, governance challenges around solving these problems work within countries. I think there's a strong recognition that, that you know, that's a really important lens. Uh, but it's clearly a lens to apply to the global governance uh, mechanisms and to the global convenings. You know, what issues get on the agenda? What solutions are offered? What kinds of commitments people make? You know, what do the financial commitments uh, mean? So I think, you know, there's a real need um, in, in our uh, estimation for more globally oriented political economy and institutional um, analysis. So, you know, let me stop with that and hand over to uh, Asma Latif, who's the uh, policy and advocacy lead at the SDG2 Advocacy Hub, uh, to take us through the rest of the discussion. Uh, and, and just a reminder to the audience, keep your questions uh, coming in online. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much, Purnima and IFRI for, um, and the Rockefeller Foundation for this amazing and timely analysis. Um, I can hold this closer. Hi. Hi. Good morning, everyone. Um, we uh, thank you again for having me uh, moderate this next part of the, the session. Um, as an advocate and an optimist, um, every year is the year that we're going to turn the tide and uh, begin to accelerate progress towards 2030. 
Um, and as I go into this year, I have that same feeling. But there are significant headwinds. Um, and uh, Purnima and Yo and others have, and um, Rob have already uh, spoken to some of those headwinds. And of course, the poly crises uh, follow us into 2024 uh, with a vengeance. So, um, but I'm, I have the privilege of uh, uh, moderating a panel that can, that can really uh, get into some of the opportunities we have this year. We've spoken already about the, the G20 and the G7 already um, committing to put food security, nutrition, food systems transformation on the agenda. There are significant discussions at the global level around uh, mobilizing finance at scale, including MDB reform, uh, and to leverage the uh, multilateral development banks uh, uh, to do more on climate and development. So this, this report really gives us some food for thought as we um, enter into this year of, of great potential. Um, I was around in 2009, uh, 15 years ago, when the G7 and the G20 really did come together at a time of a crisis. It was the great, uh, the financial crisis as well as a significant food price crisis. At that time, Italy, um, uh, the, Italy hosted the G7 and launched the L'Aquila Food Security Initiative that really did unlock a lot of investment in agriculture and nutrition. And then we had um, the US G20 in Pittsburgh uh, establish the global um, GAFSB, the Global Agriculture and Food Security Program. So there is precedent for uh, big thinking um, in the face of crisis, and we hope that this year we will be able to see some of that. And as, an, as advocates, uh, it um, behooves us to think about how we take on the findings of this report to inform our own um, efforts. So with that, um, I am excited to dive into this, these issues with the panel, um, with an excellent panel, some of whom are partners in the Hungry for Action campaign, which is a campaign we launched uh, in 2022 with, with our partners to break the cycle of food crises and to address some of the longer term issues to build resilience and uh, secure the future. So with that, um, I'd like to start with, um, we have a representative from Brazil. Um, so I'd like to start with uh, Pedro. Pedro Vormitag is the Deputy Director for External Relations at the Brazilian Center for International Relations. Welcome, Pedro. Um, Brazil hosts, holds the presidency of the G20, as has been noted many times um, today, and uh, will also uh, have the presidency of COP30 um, in 2025. What is your sense of the importance of the global food security agenda this year in these processes, and how might the findings of this work, especially as they pertain to the G20, be helpful in supporting more effective dialogue, greater coordination, and investments? So over to you, Pedro. 
Thank you very much for uh, this opportunity. Um, I want to thank the International Food Policy Research Institute and the Rockefeller Foundation for this invitation. Um, so we at, at the Brazilian Center for International Relations, we are one of the organizers of the T20 engagement group, as well as one of the collaborators of the Business 20, the B20 engagement group, in particular when it comes to the debate about food security. Um, like uh, some of you guys mentioned before, global food security is one of Brazil's top priority for its presidency of the G20 this year. Our president, President Lula, uh, he has put together three major priorities. Number one is at large what, what they call social inclusion and the fight against hunger and inequality. So you can see how important that is for the Brazilian agenda. Number two is energy transition and sustainable development. And number three is a uh, overall reform of global institutions. Um, when it comes to the government's official position on this issue, um, in, in, in the context of the G20, of course, uh, the working group in agriculture has stated the following priorities. I'm gonna name four of them. Uh, the sustainability of agri-food systems in their multiple paths. Number two is uh, the enhancement of international trade contribution to food and nutritional security. Number three is uh, an overall increase in the access to markets, be it you know local, national, regional, global, for family farmers, peasants, indigenous peoples, and traditional communities. This is a very um, uh, you know traditional and priority uh, uh, when it comes to the uh, current administration. And finally, the promotion of sustainable integration of fisheries and agriculture into local and global value chains. Um, and the idea is that the G20 and its fora uh, will endorse those initiatives uh, in this direction and coordinate the multi with a lot of other multilateral institutions to advance towards SDG number two uh, with those uh, frameworks in mind. Now, uh, Brazil emphasizes uh, the absence of a universal solution uh, or a universal agri-food system that is applicable to all nations, you know, uh, and, and it's part of the Brazilian tradition on that debate to stress the need for a nuanced approach. The key argument here is um, that uh, we have to look at food security from a transnational perspective and therefore advocate for a perspective that transcends national boundaries, of course, right? Um, another crucial part of the way uh, Brazil is going to go about this debate is uh, the Brazilian presidency is going to underscore the pivotal role of international trade in agricultural products and, and, and food, you know, to enhance food and nutritional security. Uh, the idea is that uh, by participating in global trade, countries can diversify their supply sources and better manage food distribution, particularly in the face of challenges posed by climate change. So like, like you said, uh, that's also going to be part of the agenda during COP30 next year. Uh, moreover, you know, Brazil identifies specific challenges in international trade, uh, what, what it's traditionally named or labeled as distortive trade measures and, you know, overall arbitrary disguised and unjustifiable barriers. Um, overcoming those issues, those hindrances, is deemed crucial for the Brazilian perspective on global food security because the way the country sees it is it's a way of to foster a more effective and fair global food system um, which aligns with the country's uh, call for addressing these obstacles to ensure a broader access to safe uh, 
and nutritious, nutritious food globally. Uh, last year, you know, during the, G, the Indian G20 presidency, uh, the, the G20 ministers of agriculture reiterated their commitment to food and nutrition security through the, uh, the DECAN high level principles of food security and nutrition, right? Um, we also know we were part of that discussion uh, that during that occasion, countries can uh, reaffirmed the significance of strengthening a rules-based, open, predictable, transparent, non-discriminatory, inclusive, equitable, um, based on scientific principles and sustainable multilateral trading system uh, within the framework of the uh, World Trade Organization. Um, and the way we look at this, uh, it was you know perceived that it, it, it's core, it's crucial to enhance market predictability, uh, a significant increase in business confidence, and finally to allow agri-food trade to flow to contribute to food security and nutrition. Um, and Brazil has strongly supported both of these aspects. Um, and if you look at the public statements and the uh, official position papers by government officials on that matter, uh, you'll notice that the Brazilian perspective differs significantly from that of India. Um, at large, you know, Brazil expresses a commitment to fostering a more open and liberalized international trade environment in the realm of agriculture. I think this is a crucial difference. Uh, we have a very, you know, liberalized way of going about the debate about global food security. Um, and if you look at the official uh, statements, you'll notice that the government officials don't underscore uh, the Brazilian emphasis on working towards uh, a freer global trade in agricultural product products, which implies, you know, a focus on trade barriers, uh, promotion of more open markets for agricultural goods, and you know we can all understand where that's coming. Right? Uh, you know, as one of the major contributors to global food production. Uh, we are often referred to as one of the world's bread baskets. Uh, the country is pretty much positioned to advocate for fair uh, and trade uh, in agriculture. Uh, just to you know, uh, end up my 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 remarks. Um, the reference to Brazil's role in the G20 suggests that the country leverages its status as a major agricultural producer during international fora. In these settings, uh, Brazil prioritizes the importance of fair and unrestricted, unrestricted trade in agriculture, reflecting, like I said, the position as a key player in the global food supply chain. Um, there's just one small uh, country, uh, issue with that, which is Brazil also faces serious problems with domestic hunger. Uh, as of now, millions of Brazilians face daily challenges to acquire basic nutrients. And, you know, having this in mind, first and foremost priority to articulate a decisive international pact towards the eradication of poverty uh, and hunger. Um, so I don't thank, think thank you very much, Pedro. Yeah. That was a, a terrific overview of some of the priorities, and we look forward to uh, working with you and learning more uh, as, as the process um, continues into this year and wishing you all the best um, for the G20. Mwandwe, um, I will go to you next. Mwandwe um, Chileshi is the Director for Food Security, Nutrition and Agriculture at Global Citizen. 
Wondre, how might the findings be used of the report be used to inform global advocacy campaigns on hunger, food security, and healthy diets to move beyond a shared recognition of the problem and a vision on the, on the way forward to greater action and deeper investments? And how might the findings be used to support better intergovernmental discourse and action on financial and accountability investments? Over to you. Thanks, Asma, and thank you for having me on the panel today. It's been really insightful listening to the presentation of the findings, but also just coming right after Pedro and really thinking about how Brazil has positioned food security this year. This is quite an exciting discussion. Um, just for a little bit of context, I work with an organization called Global Citizen, and what we do is really combine pop culture and policy. So it's really about creating mass movements on the world's biggest issues. And so as that relates to food security, it's really about when we think about what the findings have shown us today, we've heard quite a few times today that there's a, this large piece about accountability, that we are seeing some of these commitments show up in the different fora, but how are we ensuring that there's accountability across this spectrum? And so for the work that I do at Global Citizen and the majority of the work I think that a lot of campaigners do, creating large campaigns becomes essential for accountability. I think a lot of the advocacy work that we do is reliant on ensuring that we get those commitments through the door, but there is the larger aspect that comes after the commitment is how do, where does this financing reach and whom does it reach? And when we have a public audience, Behind that, we have a, a, the first step for accountability. We have a large platform where we, we can then ensure that these commitments that we've seen in different fora actually show up for the communities where they need to show up. Um, another thing that I find really interesting about the findings and something that was quite key when just reading through the two reports is there is a big thing about being able to translate the complexity of what this financing is and across the different dimensions being able to translate that complexity into simplicity. So we know that a lot of the audiences that we are dealing with, especially when I talk about putting together large campaigns, we need to be able to translate everything that we've just said today, all of these findings that we are talking about, into ensuring that other people also become the champions of the messages that we found so that it doesn't sit within this echo chamber. And I find that what the report has done in terms of breaking down into sort of these seven aspects where we can be able to track, that already that's a, quite a great step in being able to communicate this to a larger audience, but also communicate it to the people themselves that are making the commitments. So whether it be governments or large private sector entities, that this is what we need to be tracking across. The third thing I want to bring out is really thinking about uh, what it means when we talk about creating pathways for national action. This has come up quite a few times in the discussion and it is quite relevant for the work that we're doing around advocacy and campaigning is thinking about local and national contexts don't sit on their own, that they actually sit within a broader system. And that when we communicate this is being able to think about what does this mean for the broader context in which they are in? So a lot of the time when we've talked about sort of what this commitment platform means, what financing for food security and nutrition means, we also need to remember that this sits within the context of a lot of countries are facing debt crisis and what does that mean in the context in which they sit? I think that this is a quite a key aspect that 
the report highlights, but it also when we talk about creating these pathways for national and local action, we need to be able to recognize that it sits within a broader context. A really big one, uh, another point I wanted to raise is about thinking about uh, shocks. So we've talked about sort of this big financing and it being fit for purpose. I think that's something that we need to really consider when we're talking about fit for purpose is the fact that we need to be accounting for potential shocks. What the last few years have shown us is that from COVID to conflict and to multiple crises, whether it be climate change, that shocks are going to happen. And so when we're thinking about financing it and financing strategies, they need to be able to account for shocks. Otherwise, if for every time we face a shock, if it reverses years of progress, then we're sort of not meeting the standard that we've set about financing being fit for purpose. And I think this is a key aspect and it comes out a few times in the different reports around acknowledging what the different crises and shocks have done. I think it's quite important that even as commitment makers are thinking about sort of what the next steps look like, what the future looks like, that it needs to be able to account for these shocks. And that's going to be sort of a, a key way to be able to translate what we have in these findings and in the work that we do on a daily basis in the advocacy. Um, a really key thing that came out, which was quite interesting for me to note in these reports as well, the findings was this idea of being able to repurpose agriculture support for even additional wins. So I think there was a, a key point which was raised by a few of the presenters that talked about um, we, we see a lot of financing going to agriculture, but not necessarily aligned to the SDGs. And so thinking about this vast support that we already know is going to agriculture, how can this translate into agriculture that actually goes to supporting smallholder farmers, to supporting the communities that are at greatest risk of the climate crisis, but also where we know that the majority of the financing is not ending up. So when we talk about thinking about repurposing this agriculture uh, support, thinking about things that don't distort markets, that don't actually disrupt the people who are at the front lines of food production. I thought that was quite an interesting way. And if we're able to communicate this in a way that is uh, quite tangible for governments and the corporations who are invested in food security, I think this would be a, quite a, a significant one. Um, I don't want to take too long. I know that uh, the other speakers also bring quite a few points, but I think that just to, to conclude and from, from my perspective, Asma, I think it's quite uh, important that we see this tone of conversation where we go beyond just talking about the big numbers but really thinking about from commitment to implementation, what does this look like? And these sort of seven components which have been highlighted here, I think are going to be very key in how we work over the course of 2024, but also into the coming years. I think it, it, set us, it sets us up for uh, some really great success. Like you, Asma, I'm uh, an advocate and an optimist. Thanks, Asma. Thank you so much, Mwandwe. Um, really very clear, excellent points. Um, I wanted to just pick up on your point about the, the context, the national, regional context. And given the African Union seat now at the G20 and also um, the discussions that are going to happen at uh, the African Union summit upcoming on the post-Malabo uh, process, it, it's another opportunity, I think, for advocates um, at the regional level. So um, with that, I will turn to Oliver Camp. 
Oliver is the Environment and Food Systems Advisor at the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. Oliver, COP28 was an unprecedented uh, moment, uh, COP for food systems. The official statements are limited in their focus, but the UAE declaration was a big win. Um, what comes next, though, and how can global actors and convenings support the food food security, food systems goals within the UAE Declaration. What ideas do you have to ensure greater horizontal coherence across the diverse global convenings in 2024 towards food security diets and climate goals? Over to you, Oliver. Thanks very much, Asma. And uh, it's nice to, to be beaming in and to be with all of you virtually. Sorry not to be there in person. I'm, I'm really grateful and, and perhaps also relieved to hear some optimism about the role of these global gatherings. Um, I feel very positive about, about the role of the global gatherings, the multilateral processes, and these high-level events and engagements that perhaps in the media aren't often well-received. But maybe as I'm getting more experienced in attending them, I'm thinking that they may not be perfect, but if we didn't have them, then, then we would certainly want them. And I think as we've seen in the presentations today, it's thanks to these convenings that we have some really, really strong commitments around food security, hunger, nutrition, and of course the environmental and livelihood components related to agri-food systems, whether that's from the Paris Agreement and the SDGs, or whether it's really from any one of dozens of other multilateral processes that we can point to. But then more broadly, I think if we kind of zoom out to maybe my, my personal perception, I think we can reasonably say that you know, most people would agree that addressing hunger, food insecurity, uh, health issues, climate issues, these are good things to do. So I, I've never really had the sense that there is a huge lack of political will. And I think the Emirates Declaration really confirmed that. If, if we did have any lingering doubts, then 159 countries signing on to this very broad sweeping declaration was a, a really positive breakthrough. In addition to that, let's also bear in mind there was a declaration on climate and health. 134 countries signed that. That mentioned the importance of healthy and sustainable diets. And there were other declarations about things like nature, climate and people and other, other mechanisms too that the UAE introduced. So I think that begs the question, well, then why have we had, as people always say, 28 COPs and we're not making progress or we have all these declarations and malnutrition is so high? Obviously, very fair questions. But I think the reason is that these goals are really difficult to achieve. It's really complex. And this is where I think that we have a unique advantage from COP28 as compared to previous processes, which is that the UAE presidency really built in the follow-up mechanisms. So for me, it's not just the existence of the Emirates Declaration that's so positive, it's the existence of the technical cooperation collaborative that sits behind that and that is intended to help countries to deliver against these goals. I mean, given the complexity of what we're asking countries to achieve, I think it's really important that we're presenting the kind of coherent, united front that we're asking governments to present when they're looking at food systems transformation. It's meant to cut across ministries, departments, agencies, it's meant to cut across sectors, and achieving these goals is going to require that kind of interdisciplinary thinking. So we need to do the same. And I think the TCC, for anyone who hasn't heard about it, we can share some follow-up materials, but this is, uh, I mean, IFPRI is one of the partners who's been involved and attended the first couple of meetings, GAIN, AGRA, likewise, and the FAO, the World Bank, and others. I think that it's going to be so helpful for us to have that supporting mechanism which brings together actors in international development 
who can then deliver technical assistance and who can deliver both in response to government needs, but also proactively. Just to mention a couple of other points, and I'm keen that we leave some time for, for Q&A as well. We still have the initiatives launched at COP27, and I think we shouldn't forget those. We have things like Fast uh, Food and Agriculture for Sustainable Transformation, ICANN, which is the initiative on climate action and nutrition. And those will now continue through also to um, towards COP29 and into Brazil. And then finally, you asked me about other convenings this year. And I mean, there are so many. We have UNEA at the end of this month. We have you know, many of the regular standing items on the agenda. It's also obviously a triple COP year with all three coming at the end of the year. And then next year, we'll have the UNFSS plus four uh, nutrition for growth and the big COP in Brazil. And I think that across all of these, what we need to be thinking about is having these overarching goals, these kind of coherent, uh, um, overarching synergistic visions, if you like, for the food systems transformation that we want to see. But then beneath that, we need to be thinking about how that translates into all the different parts of the processes, the NDCs, the NAPs, the NBSAPs, and many, many other strategies that come along. So I think I'll stop there. I, I'm very positive about the progress we made up to COP, and I'm very positive about the foundations we have to now build upon, as well as uh, the way that the community is rallying to do so. Thanks. That's my point. Thank, thanks, Oliver. And a plug for uh, connecting with Oliver on LinkedIn, because he is keeping tabs of absolutely every um, potential event and uh, report launch and things like that. So really useful. Um, uh, service for the community writ large. Thanks, Oliver. So oh, I will switch over to uh, the Sun Movement, uh, Alex Brescher. Alex is the Communications and Advocacy Advisor for the Scaling Up Nutrition Movement. Um, Alex, the Sun Movement works, in, works with si 65 countries. Um, most of them face uh, very high levels of hunger and malnutrition. How might uh, the Sun um, networks use these findings both to engage countries individually on effective actions and on bringing countries together around decisions that take the financing, accountability, and action agenda forward? So over to you, Alex. Thank you very much, Asma. And it is indeed a, a pleasure uh, to be here. A big, big congratulations to our colleagues from, uh, from IFPRI for uh, a missing piece in our nutrition uh, advocacy work. So, um, in so in, for those who don't know the Sun Movement, so uh, the Sun Movement uh, represents uh, 66 member countries. So it's a country-led and country-driven movement of countries coming together to end all forms of malnutrition by uh, 2030. And I'm the uh, communications and advocacy advisor at the Sun Movement. So our two main priorities in terms of advocacy are to support uh, access for countries to nutrition finance, whether domestic or uh, external, and to support a multi-stakeholder, multi-sectoral engagement at the country level. And what's really interesting when I read the report is what comes next after the commitments. So these commitments are made in global fora, the delegations come back to the countries, and then we shift towards implementation. But in some countries, we don't have the right advocacy mechanism to support that implementation. I'm going to give you a few figures. So really, my point today will be on how 
do we strengthen the advocacy capacity at the country level to make sure that the implementation of this commitment becomes a multi-sectoral uh, work, uh, become, becomes a teamwork, because that's the only way to uh, make sure that uh, we accelerate towards the implementation. So every year, the Sun Movement conducts a, an exercise called the Joint um, um, Accountability, uh, um, the JAA, sorry. So this year, out of the 58 countries that participated in that exercise, which is a self-led um, uh, exercise, so the countries provide data on uh, different aspects of the implementation of the National Nutrition Plan, including advocacy. So out of the 58 countries that participated this year, 28 countries indicated that they have a national nutrition plan, 11 that uh, a national nutrition, uh, national advocacy strategy, sorry, that they have a national advocacy strategy, 11 that a national advocacy strategy is being developed, and 19 said that they don't have an advocacy strategy. And so we, we try to delve a bit deeper and to ask the countries, well, on a scale from one to four, one being the lowest, four being uh, the highest, how do you rate the efficiency of your uh, advocacy uh, strategies in bringing the, the different stakeholders and sectors together for the implementation of this uh, commitments and the National Nutrition Plan? And more than half of the countries who participated in the exercise and who said, yes, we do have a National Nutrition uh, Advocacy Plan, sorry, say that they were either fully satisfied or extremely satisfied, so three to four, with the role that that uh, national advocacy strategy was, uh, was doing. So really, I wanted to highlight that. So two findings, well, half of the countries, uh, well, it's always whether you see the glass half full of half or half empty, but half of the countries do not have a national advocacy strategy. But out of those who have, well, the majority is, is fully satisfied and really they're making progress because of that. So at the Sun Movement, we are uh, working on lots of country uh, support, providing technical assistance for those countries who don't have a, an advocacy strategy to be able to build uh, one. We're doing that through in-person trainings with our partners, to, through e-learning modules as well, so that we make sure that the national focal points can advocate uh, at uh, the national level uh, to bring uh, every sector on board for the implementation of these commitments. Well, when we look at the report, uh, what comes to mind as well is another uh, activity that the Sun Movement is really keen on, is promoting peer learning, so cross-pollination of knowledge. So out of the countries who have successfully uh, implemented uh, their commitments. Some of them have the capacity to uh, transfer the skills and knowledge to other countries who are a bit late in their commitments. So looking at the report, it's going to be very interesting to see where the commitments has been, have been successfully implemented and make sure that we use the different SUN mechanism uh, to promote peer learning, to, well, simply tell stories that can inspire others and uh, from which uh, others can uh, can learn. And then my third point is how do we make sure that country voices are heard in uh, uh, global events? So 
I was along with Oliver and her colleagues uh, at uh, COP28, for example, and really country voices and the voice of nutrition stakeholders from the countries is not always heard and well heard in these global events. For example, we know that there, uh, there's sometimes a lack of synchronization between the climate community and the nutrition community. So how do we make sure that we connect these different sectors to uh, make sure that the asks from the countries are uh, being heard and acted upon uh, by donors, by a technical support organization to make sure that these uh, commitments are implemented. I heard a bell, so I think I come to the end of my uh, uh, speech, but happy to answer uh, any questions you have. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, um, Alex, very clear points. So now I think we do have a few minutes uh, for questions. We have a question at there. Okay. Please go ahead. Uh, thanks very much. Really amazing discussion, and I love bringing together the research and the advocacy and, and seeing these very dedicated advocates uh, here at IFRI. Really wonderful. Um, I have a few questions. So uh, the, the first one is for Pedro from Brazil. Really interesting, your strong, not surprising, I guess, your strong emphasis on trade. But to be a little bit uh, uh, provocative, what are your chances of success given how little is happening at the WTO? You mentioned your agenda is very different from that of India. And I would add to that, there's a lot of discussion, as Brazil knows all too well, about making trade rules more supportive of sustainability goals. So you have things like the EU's global, um, the, the value chains free of deforestation, all of these issues. So, so how do you think you're gonna make progress there? Um, I wanted to ask everybody about the role of the private sector, which has not been mentioned once uh, in this discussion. So how do you see the role of the private sector in making these global commitments work? Um, or do they need to take commitments? And then last, to be also a little bit provocative, um, Accountability, right? We're talking about accountability of governments that are making these global commitments. Do we need to also think about the accountability of research organizations and advocacy organizations? So I thought that, that your point, Alex, was really great, right? How much are all of us actually working at the ground level, at the country level, to ensure there's good research capacity uh, there, that there's good advocacy uh, there as well? So many thanks. Really great discussion. That was Charlotte from IFRI. Yes. Um, we'll take a, a couple more questions if there are any. No? Okay. Um, so I, I guess it, you know, it's a question that perhaps uh, relates to the types of things that should be in um, the means of implementation and a you know, question asking not just about trade but about um, extension systems and their link to, you know, supporting the um, food security challenge. Great. So, Pedro, over to you on the question around trade. Uh, thank you. Uh, these are actually very interesting, thoughtful questions. Um, two points. Um, I think when it comes to the trade perspective from Brazil, 
it is we all understand at this point that it's going to be more about a bilateral uh, approach on a almost on a case by case basis. That's pretty much how the Brazilian agri food industry looks at the issue. So we're recently, for instance, um, a trade deal on that uh, was celebrated between Brazil and Singapore, and a great a great attention was paid in the newspapers. For instance, uh, I would also point out that um, we don't. Brazil is not reliant on, on, on the WTO anymore, unfortunately. So we are pretty much aware of the, uh, the global status on that front. And finally, um, when it comes to the relation between trade and sustainable development, uh, it is a fair, fairly consensual uh, uh, point of view in the Brazilian foreign policy and trade conversation that that at the end of the day will benefit Brazil a great deal. And one of the reasons for that is that, you know, uh, when it comes to the overall sustainability of the value chains for food and the, 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 the exports for food, Brazil is way ahead of most of its competitors. Uh, that doesn't mean that we don't have a homework to be done when it comes to on, you know, uh, traceability of some of the uh, agriculture, agricultural products, but uh, when we look at the uh, uh, buyers from Europe, for instance, we are pretty confident that uh, the most sustainable product for now, uh, especially compared to competitors in Asia uh, or you know other countries, Brazil is far ahead. Uh, and we're going to use the opportunity of the G20 to uh, promote that vision and, of course, to advance further in the homework of keeping it even more sustainable. And that speaks directly to your point about uh, deforestation uh, in particular, right? So these will be my my overall answers. Okay. Thank, Thank you for, for your question. Thank you. Um, Thank you. There was a question around the private sector. Does Do you want to take that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, no, Charlotte, that's a very important question, uh, if only because food systems are run by the private sector, including farmers and so on. It's, it's, it's a private sector operation. So without the private sector, we can't do these changes. So think what's um, uh, in the agenda. Of course, the 2030 agenda was established in a meeting of governments, uh, the UN General Assembly. Subsequently, with the establishment of discussions about the goals and targets, there was a broader uh, group, including uh, non-governmental um, uh, institutions that, that were part of that goal setting, although there was, uh, the representation of the private sector was uh, was rather minimal, if you like. But at least they were engaged. And then there's another set of other platforms where the private sector has become more involved in the agenda setting or the commitments uh, is with the UNFSS, was a multi-stakeholder meeting where private sector um, agents were there, not necessarily fully represented. Um, as well as um, uh, at the um, uh, uh, high-level political forum, which is sort of a accountability framework, which is uh, led by a, a government in, in the government process, but also involves private sector agents. But I think more importantly for the agenda setting, that's where means of implementation become important. Um, I think one thing which I mentioned uh, about the agricultural support, right, is that to think not about um, 
providing more money to the agriculture sector in, in general. It's the most important thing what that support defines is the incentives for actors, right? So it defines the profitability for farmers and other actors. So that's why that discussion is so important and how we set that. Um, and last thing, I think maybe that's something that we haven't touched upon here, but what I know from my experience having worked with UN agencies with FEO, is there anything that private sector actors um, immediately jump on, um, up or down, right? <laughs> is standards, food standards, right? So if you take a thing like Codex Alimentarius, which sets the uh, food safety standards and, and a lot of other standards, that's, that's where you get a real interest from the private sector. What's going on? How is this going to affect my business? So I think that also in the, the discussion on uh, Trading rules, uh, it's not just about opening up trade, but it's also about regulating trade in ways that we have safe food, we have sustainably produced food, we promote um, healthy foods, right? And that's where standards come in. Uh, and I think that's where a dialogue with the private sector will be become crucial because they have to abide with those rules that set the rules of the game to them. Thank you. Um we are at time, Purnima. I'm not sure we'll have time to go into the other. So do you want to wrap up, or sh should we take the time? Five minutes. Great. Great. OK. Yeah. There's one question. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Thank you. I wanted to touch on um, Charlotte's question on accountability for research institutions. Um, I think even with today's event, what's been nice is this partnership between research and advocacy. Um, at the end of the day, the research we do needs to be taken up and needs to be translated so actions can be taken and that people, general audiences, um, can take that information and use it. And I do think that we do have a role um, in capacity building, capacity strengthening, working with institutions in the countries we work in and low middle income countries. Um, so that it's, you know, it's not just us doing the research and presenting, but we are working in partnerships um, at the local level. So I think that is a, a role research institutions have um, and should invest in. Um, I know some are doing it. We have some of the CG initiatives have a strong focus on capacity sharing and the work we're doing. Um, but I do think that's something that needs to be promoted more and, and something we, we have a role to do. Thank you. Does anybody else on the panel want to come in on that question around accountability? Or the private sector? Oliver. Thanks, Esma. Maybe just a brief comment on both. Firstly, I, I really like the idea that we, we need to stop uh, thinking that we've done our job when we produce some very smart guidance or research or when we you know, present at a high level convening. I think we need to make ourselves much more useful than that and hold ourselves to a really high standard as a food systems community, as an international development community, which involves being supportive to governments in making policies that achieve these goals. And it involves working across sectors and across across actors to enable this kind of transition. The job is not done when we call for action from somebody else. And that, that's a kind of broad point about accountability. But I think then just to slightly link to the private sector question, you know, the private sector has a very different set of motivations and incentives. They are, whether we like it or not, in a capitalist system, you know, they are thinking about maximizing returns to their shareholders and maximizing profits and, and so on. 
and I think we need to recognize that there are certain things we can expect of the private sector through altruism and responsible business and so on. But there's an awful lot more which needs to be done thanks to either top down pressure from regulation and policy or bottom up pressure from consumers who we would need to, to mobilize. So I think it's really important we bear that in mind as we look for how we can make these big transformative shifts that, uh, that Rob was alluding to via the private sector. Thanks. Over. Great. Anyone else? No. Great. Well, thank you to the panel and uh, for the questions. Um, Purnima, do you want to wrap up? Yeah. Th thanks, um, Asma, for really moderating a fantastic panel, and thank you again to all four panelists. Um, I mean, each of you brought such incredible perspectives, and you know, I'm, I, I think Pedro just need to say that you know one of the elements we haven't considered fully, even in our own analyses of these global meetings, is you know how do the priorities of the host countries uh, play out in the context of the dialogue, the discourse, the outcome statements? What does it mean when you have connectedness in, in host country priorities versus differences in host country priorities for how, how things unfold. So clearly a big agenda there on, on um, you know, just the political economy around uh, and global governance around, around these processes. Um, one of the things that struck me a lot in undertaking this work is that we would do very well as a global community to pay a lot of attention to what gets articulated in the means of implementation uh, the next time around global goals are articulated. I, you know, I was, I, I confess, a little taken aback to realize that the means of implementation around SDG 2, which focus on food security, an issue of human populations, is almost wholly supply uh, linked. All three means of implementation are very focused on what happens on the food supply side. And the kinds of um, interventions, policies, and programs that we think about often as being effective in solving the food security challenges in the countries we work in actually sit in the means of implementation around SDG 1, such as social safety nets. Um, and so when you look at a big problem like food security and you realize that the global goals have parked you know, some agreements on intermediate actions in some place, but that in fact there are relevant actions in other places, well, I guess on the one hand, it emphasizes the interconnectedness, but on the other hand, it just means that we, we should be paying a lot more attention to, for example, what's happening around investments related to social safety net problems if we want to solve food insecurity and the challenge of poor diets uh, for poor populations, because it's a primary demand side um, type of policy instrument, and, and we really need substantial investments there, the kind of investments that are being made even in high-income countries to address issues of um, achieving healthy diets. Um, I think there's other, you know, really, you know, the nutrition goal within SDG 2, I think, is, is fantastic. It's great to see that goal in there. Uh, but in fact, you know, when I look at the rest of the rest of what's in there, we don't really see means of implementation that pertain to the achievement of SDG 2.2, right? Um, so, so again, I, I think as we look forward to what happens in the next few years around the setting of new goals for the global community, it's going to become really important that we align around supporting um, you know, anything that pertains to effective intermediate actions and to the financing and the accountability around that. So that, for me, is a key uh, takeaway from the work that we've done. Um, I'm, you know, we, we do have um, 
some follow-up conversations from this with the global advocacy community. We're hoping to take the, you know, the conversation to a few more advocacy communities following from there in partnership uh, with uh, Asma and her team. Uh, so I also you know, just want to thank the audience for engaging, uh, thank the great questions that, you know, the comments that the panelists have made, um, and, and you know, really reiterate that I think as uh, a research institution, our goal is to not just put the papers out there, but to engage with people who will be the users of this work. You know, please help us uh, take this work forward to you know, the various logical conclusions of what needs to happen in, in different spaces. So we really look forward to collaborating with all of you. Uh, I'd be remiss in wrapping up my thanks um, and wrapping up this event if I didn't you know, just say a few thank yous, so please indulge me for a moment. Again, huge thank you to Catherine Bertini and her team at the Rockefeller Foundation, so please, you know, big hand for seeing, you know, that this is an issue that, that needed attention. Uh, I think funders play a big role in seeing what kinds of issues need attention, and, and we really appreciate that you decided to, to take on this. I want to thank again the IFPRI research team and our partners around the room, and Eleanor for her fantastic project management through these last several months. Uh, and last but not least, uh, IFPRI's communications and public affairs team led by Charlotte, uh, thank you so much, team. Every single one of you has been amazing in pulling this event uh, together. Uh, so really incredible gratitude to all of you and to Lorena and my team, who's you know, helped with a lot of coordination. Uh, so thank you, everyone. For those in the room, please join us for a healthy, sustainable uh, little brunch outside. Uh, and I know some of you will stay back for the follow-up conversation on advocacy as well. Thanks. Thanks again. <laughs>